Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this season, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every single goddamn page in a trio of adventure modules for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes RPG, starting with Adventure MT1, All This and World War II. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. All This and World War II was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Today we're discussing page 31 of All This and World War II, and it's an exciting day today. We are time traveling at last in this time travel adventure, and just to let you know, this is a sexy topless climate change edition of MDC. As I record, I'm in the midst of the Pacific Northwest heat wave, and so for the first time I can recall in my storied podcast career, I'm podcasting without a shirt on. You know, I normally podcast in a hotel room, get a reservation, go there away from the wife and the toddler, where there's a little bit of quiet so I can podcast. This was meant to be a recording weekend, but then it turned out that there was going to be a historic, soul-crushing heat wave. So I decided instead of using it as a recording studio, why not invite my uh, wife and toddler there so that my little girl doesn't combust, since my apartment doesn't have AC, which meant that if I wanted to get any recording done, I would have to come back to aforementioned hellish apartment. So here I sit in a 90-degree closet, shirtless, dripping, forget I said dripping, gleaming, and I'm going to be recording all through the night because it's going to drop to a smooth 79 degrees here in a couple hours at 2 a.m. And if I want this podcast to continue, which apparently I do, I've got five golden hours between 2 and 7 a.m. before the sun recommences 48 straight hours of killing me. I'm not doing this shit tomorrow. I mean, I've podcasted through a surprising number of catastrophic local circumstances, but <laughs> I'm not sitting in this fucking closet in 113 degree weather. If, if, if only for your sake. Imagine the lip noises. That would not be a sexy topless climate change party. This, in the balmy midnight hour, is a sexy topless climate change podcast party, and I'm just giddy about it. Or maybe dehydrated. Really a great time. You can join in the sexy topless climate change party. Please, everybody, send me your topless pics of you in a location of great natural beauty that is being gradually destroyed by man's avarice. Anyway, if there's one downside to all this climate change, it's that I have to have a fan on in the apartment. You may hear it, and I'm sorry. Fan noises are not enjoyable audio, but neither is the sound of me actually dying on mic, so I had to make a call, and I went for the fan. Anyway, page 31. When we last left our heroes on page 30, they had finally escaped Nick Fury, although not his dark master, Hamilton Crane, and they had finally left 1989 in their time machine by hitting the recall switch that was meant to send them back to the very moment, the very time and place from which the Nazi time ship launched. As we discussed last time, it would have been very bad for our heroes if that had worked, because it would have sent them into the heart of an extremely high-tech, extremely secure, extremely Nazi facility. It's a good thing, then, that shit never works out in this adventure. Quote, Crossing your fingers and holding your breath, you pull the recall switch, causing the capsule to roar into life. A loud wheezing fills the air as the timeship begins to jolt and shake. After a few seconds, you begin to see bright flashing spots, and your head starts pounding. The groaning and shaking is becoming much worse. Something must be wrong. Indeed, something is wrong. Something is so wrong that it is characterized as an encounter. By the way, this is all on page 30. We're getting to page 31. The encounter here, the thing that has gone wrong, is that the time machine has been damaged. And so the recall switch is not working properly, causing the time ship to shake. So everybody's got to make endurance rolls. Endurance rolls all around, first typical intensity, then good intensity, then excellent intensity. And every time you fail an endurance roll, you take five points of Star Trek damage as you are thrown back and forth across the bridge of the time ship. Quote, when the capsule finally comes to a stop, the heroes will notice that the internal chronometer reads September 21st, 1943. The damage to the capsule also threw off its guidance systems, causing the vessel to arrive three days late. 
It is impossible to see outside of the time capsule without opening the door. Classic shitty time machine design. No windows, no portholes, no periscope. It's tradition. Baron Zemo isn't a bad designer. He's just a Doctor Who fan. Uh, you do get some clues what could be outside the ship because you hear some loud explosions. They are right outside. When you finally leave the time ship, outside of which you hear explosions, more on that soon, you get the following read-aloud text, quote, The time capsule has come to rest in a clump of thick vegetation at the bottom of a steep gully. It is broad daylight, and overhead you can hear the whine of exploding artillery shells. This is 1943, all right. Just over the lip of the gully, you can see an overturned jeep and a group of three pinned American soldiers fighting for their lives. The Americans are completely encircled by German forces. In fact, the same German troops that are encircling the Americans are encircling your gully as well. So now at last we're on to page 31 and you understand where we are. The time machine landed in a gully. It's three days late. Who knows where it is? There's an overturned American Jeep. There are some Americans fighting for their lives against Nazis who have them pinned down. The Nazis are surrounding your gully. They're surrounding the Americans. They're surrounding the Jeep. Naturally, there's nothing for it but to jump into the fray and help these American soldiers fight off the Nazis. So we get a little bit of detail about who your comrades in arms will be in this valiant struggle to defend the Jeep and the gully against the Nazi forces. Quote, the three pinned soldiers are a man in his late 50s, a little overweight but rough-looking, General Thomas Dozer, an officer in his early 40s with gray streaks through his blonde hair, Major Anthony Holland, and their non-commissioned driver, tall, lanky, and jittery. See the NPC section for Dozer and Holland statistics, and use the stats for a typical soldier found on page 63 of the judge's book for the driver. Dozer and company were out surveying the troops when the American line was temporarily overrun, stranding them behind enemy lines. Encircling the Americans are 12 Nazi soldiers and a PZKW-4 tank, so that's a panzer. The tank has the following statistics. Control typical, speed typical, body incredible, protection remarkable. Then it goes on to give details about the gun on the panzer. We don't really care about that for our purposes. The only reason I bring it up is to point out, and I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but the panzer is the star of the show here. If you put these 12 Nazis up against this panzer, they would never scratch it. It's a tank. Conversely, if you put them up against the Cavalier, their submachine guns would whittle it down to 10 HP in the first round. It would not have a chance. Just pointing out that the elite German blueberry pancakes went all the way to 1989 to get a super weapon that is vastly inferior to a panzer. But anyway, Cavalier is in the past. What's here now are a dozen Nazis and a panzer. What are our heroes going to do about it? Well, as the text informs us, if the heroes ever want to get out of here, they pretty much have to fight those Nazis. So we get some description of which map to use for this, which location to put tokens for the pinned soldiers, etc. Just, just tactical setup. It further specifies that the heroes pretty much get a free round at the beginning because the Nazis don't know they're there. Quote, once the battle gets into full swing, Dozer, Holland, and the driver will join in on the hero's side. No matter what happens, make sure that neither Dozer nor Holland is severely injured during the ensuing battle. Go ahead and fudge the die rolls if you must. And then it goes on to give the usual note that we get at the end of every combat, which is, this combat shouldn't really be hard, and if it starts to be hard, just make sure the players win. That's very typical. What's not so typical is the specific instruction that neither Holland nor Dozer, who is referred to here as Thomas Dozer, but we know, how could we forget, uh, that his actual name is Bill Dozer, uh, the instruction that neither of them should be hurt. It fudge the die rolls if you have to. Neither of these characters can be damaged. We need them for the plot. That's unusual, but it's in keeping with the overall signature style of this author. Everything in the module is here for a reason. We need everything that's here. It's a closed system. We don't want anyone bringing anything else into this story. No new ideas, no new tactics, no new solutions, but we also use everything we have in this closed ecosystem. These characters are here, and goddammit, we need them for everything to unfold as planned. And that is true throughout this book, with rare exception. 
one of which we see today. It's the dumbest thing on this page. Although I don't know if I can articulate exactly why it's dumb. This module has a lot of characters who are individualized, like they're specific people, not just like, if you need a generic soldier, use generic soldiers, but like an individual person who has a role in the story, however small. Like Mike Casey, the security director of Not Quite Shield, or I think his name was Jack Cooper, the scientist who never does anything. You just meet him once in his lab to try to put his name on the list for the for the mystery mole plot. Uh, Holland, who are meeting on this page, no point to that character. He may serve a structural purpose, but he's nobody, but he has a name. Even two of the Nazi commandos who invaded the base have names, and they truly are just glorified mooks, but still, two of them get names. It's really hard to find in this adventure anybody just like working a counter at some store, sitting at a desk in some office where you need information, so maybe somebody at the Albuquerque Public Library. It's really hard to find anyone who has an individual role, however small, who doesn't have a name. But this poor driver, this poor motherfucker right here, no name, very conspicuously, because he's in a list with the two other people who have names. Remember, quote, the three pinned soldiers are a man in his late 50s, a little overweight but rough looking, General Thomas Dozer, an officer in his early 40s with gray streaks through his blonde hair, Major Anthony Holland, and their non-commissioned driver, tall, lanky, and jittery. Tall, lanky, and jittery. That's all he gets. Unless you're dwarves from Snow White, those are not names. But they are character traits. This is an individual role, an individual person with individual traits. He's not just any driver. He's a tall, lanky, jittery driver. Honestly, I have more to go on playing this character than I do to play Anthony Holland, who is described as in his early 40s with gray streaks through his blonde hair. Well, fantastic. Classic archetype. I can just put on the mask of the blonde man going slightly gray. Commedia dell'arte style. This is going to be great. It's nothing. Anthony Holland is nothing. Whereas this driver, he's a non-commissioned officer. He's a driver in a tough spot. He's tall, he's lanky, and he's jittery. Yet no name, no stats. He has generic stats. To get the driver's stats, you have to go back to the judge's book, which is one of the core books for the game, and look up soldier stats. The Nazi soldiers have their own Nazi soldier stats that are in this book. Holland does too. Dozer does too. The Panzer has stats on this page. Only the driver gets no stat block, no rule support, no name. And here's the irony. And you know, as I'm, as I'm talking about this, I'm finding why this truly is dumb. There's another distinguishing characteristic to this driver, aside from the fact that he's one of the only unnamed NPCs in the story. He is also maybe the only individual friendly character who can die. Cause like Nick Fury is not going to die, right? The, the fight in the base is going to go the character's way and Nick Fury has to survive. Because otherwise, who would sneak up when you're about to leave in your timeship and at the last moment hurl in through the door a copy of World War II, Inside and Out, All the People, All the Places, and All the Events by Hamilton Crane? So you got to have Nick Fury in the story. He's not going to die. Mike Casey's not in any fights. Jack Cooper's not in any fights. We see here that Dozer and Holland can't die. The encounters in this book are extremely easy on the player characters in terms of lethality. And no spoilers, but we're going to see later more identifiable individual friendly NPCs show up. And they, too have to survive. It is mandated. I think this driver on this page may be the only individual friendly NPC who you can have die in this adventure, and he doesn't even get a fucking name. It's indicative of how averse to consequences this book is, in fact. What you have here is a fight that the players are going to be beginning to cotton on to the fact that they can't really lose at this point, I feel. Like, after the thing with Cavalier, after the judge hounding them to make them take the Hamilton Crane book because they're going to need it, it's becoming clear that there's no way for us to fail, I think. So here we have a fight that's a pretty big fight, right? It's the characters show up with no prep, like not where they expected to be. And all of a sudden, they got to save some people's lives from 12 Nazis in a tank. I think the players might look at that and think, well, 
fuck, let's just wade in. I mean, what's going to happen? Like, if, if the roles don't go well, then surely more American soldiers are going to show up and just crawl all over the tank and disable it or whatever. The, nothing bad is going to happen. Let's just do this. And it's sure going to seem that way, too, once you start playing the encounter, because the GM is going to be fudging die rolls if necessary to protect these supposedly embattled American soldiers that you're trying to protect, right? Like, you're trying to save Bill Dozer, but you're going to notice that, like, it sure seems like none of these 12 Nazis can fucking hit this squat, immobile man. I think maybe the driver is here just so that there's somebody who can get hit and maybe die. And that would be great. I would commend that design choice if the author had the courage to go through with it. But instead, it's like, if I'm going to put in an NPC who might actually die, who might actually get hurt, then it's just nobody. They don't even have a name. They don't even... It's like the ultimate expression of this thing I keep talking about, where characters in this story their actions make no sense unless they know what's going to happen to them in the story. It's like the cosmos know that this is the only expendable man in World War II, so he doesn't even have a name. <laughs> He's just this materialized generic soldier, tall, lanky, and jittery, and ready to die. He could have his own stats. There's no reason he couldn't. He could have a name. It's not that hard to think of a name. This isn't about effort. It's about emotional detachment. The author is so averse to consequences that like, okay, we could kill one soldier, but he has to be a soldier with no identity. Otherwise, the player's feelings might be hurt if he dies. Well, my feelings are already hurt. They're hurt for this poor man who may die for his country without even the dignity of a name or an identity. They're already hurt for him at just the indignity of this treatment. But also, they're going to be further hurt if this tall, lanky, jittery stranger dies on my watch. He had personality traits. Three of them. That's more than some superheroes. I mean, if you count tall as a personality trait. I feel like I know this guy. Certainly more so than I do Anthony Holland, and really more so than I do Bill Dozer, if I'm a player, right? We got write-ups for those two NPCs earlier, but if you're a player, just meeting these for the first time, the driver is the one you know best. The driver is the one you can relate to the most, too. A non-com, driving these guys around, just caught in the middle of this bad situation. He's the most relatable, the most sympathetic, and he is virtually alone in this book and having no name or stat block, so we don't get attached. Weak. Where's your courage? Where's your passion? Maybe I'm just feeling this feeling because it's a sexy topless climate change podcast party, but I don't want your sterile fucking anonymous relationship with a faceless GI driver who gets shot and I feel nothing. Give this man a name. Let me know him. Let me laugh with him. Have him say a quip and I'll say a quip back. Then I hope I pray that he lives. I'll do everything I can to see that this guy uh, uh, makes it to quip another day. But if he doesn't, at least we'll have had something. I'll remember this tall, lanky, jittery man who I shared a moment with, and then he was tragically killed by Nazis 1 through 12 and or a panzer. Maybe he gets some nice last words. This could be a one-scene character who steals the adventure because we make a connection, because we feel something. And feeling that loss would affect us going forward. People can get hurt if we don't shape up and play this adventure right and heed the words of Hamilton Crane in World War II, Inside and Out, All the People, All the Places and All the Events. Innocent, lanky men could suffer for our dicking around. That would scare us straight, but no. No one can get hurt except people who aren't important, ensuring that not only will we never think during this adventure, but we will also never feel. You know what? Today I won't stand for it. I will not let this dumb thing stand. I'm going to do something about this one. This man gets a name. I'm looking around right now in this miserable closet. First things I see, we got a water bottle here. We got my soundboard right here. Rank-wise, he's a driver. Let's make this guy a private. All right. <clears throat> a moment of solemnity here in the midst of the sexy topless climate change podcast party. Private, first class, Contigo Beringer. What can I say? 
about this young man, tragically and very personally killed by a panzer, as though he was the only one they were trying to hit. Well, Private Berenger, he was tall. He was lanky. We all remember that about him. He was lanky. And, uh, well, he may have been jittery. May have been a little bit of a worrywart. Similar to that other great comic book World War II soldier from Sergeant Rock's Easy Company, Worrywart. But when that jeep flipped over, and Private Contigo Berenger was left without even the dignity of a stab block to stand shoulder to shoulder with his superior officers, General Bulldozer and the Blonde One, he did not shirk. He did not hide. He took up his generic firearm, per the description in the judge's core book, and with an endearing quip, he laid down his life for his comrades in arms, little suspecting that a cruel universe had designated him as the only Allied soldier ever able to die in World War II. Perhaps if he had known that, he would have just hid under the jeep, or behind the bulletproof general. Private Contigo, Berenger, you've left us now, but while you were here, you made us laugh, you made us feel, and going forward, you will be avenged upon your true killer, the judge. All right. We're going to get lots of opportunities to make good on that promise by poking holes in this shambles of a plot. Join me next time for a great example of that on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact the show however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Podbean, Gmail, Instagram, etc., etc. This episode's theme music is Robinson's Grand Entry March, performed by the United States Air Force Concert Band. Thanks for listening.